Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. When the Russia and Ukraine war started, it was adding fuel to a fire. We're entering this phase in an even more fragile state as a world than we entered COVID in 2020. This is not a local problem for just Russia and Ukraine. It all results in extreme, extreme unprecedented price moves, and we're seeing unreal disconnections. Three, four years ago, the understanding that we had of the world on a real-time basis was significantly worse. Gives me hope because we can answer questions much faster than ever before. That's Sarah Menker, CEO of Grow Intelligence, a data research firm with deep insights on global supply and demand. Sarah was a guest on this show early on in the pandemic when fears about food shortages and other disruptions were acute. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Sarah again because with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we face a new kind of disruption and new risks. Global markets, Sarah explains, are not just in turmoil this time around, they're also more fragile. While Sarah's biggest focus is agriculture, her insights provide a window into how things are shifting across all parts of the economy and the supply chain. She explains how advances in data and modeling give us richer understanding than even a few years ago. The on-the-ground changes in Ukraine, she explains, are leading to on-the-ground changes all over in ways that each of us and each business need to be vigilant about and mindful of. Hi, listeners. It's Erica Flynn. VP of Alliances and Audience Development at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. My day-to-day consists of nonstop communication, not only with my immediate team, but with our current partner relationships and with incoming leads from possible future partners, which is why I rely on the ease of Grammarly to keep my communication clear and efficient. One confusing email can turn into several confused replies, which can turn into an unexpected meeting which no one wants, needs, or has time for. Having Grammarly on hand as my trusted AI writing partner not only streamlines my extensive to-do list, it minimizes miscommunication by quickly and efficiently synthesizing information and carefully curating tailor-made responses to specific groups. In fact, companies that use Grammarly to communicate can save 19 days per year per employee. Grammarly eases the writing process. It's a writing partner from the blank page to the last word typed before hitting send. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with Sarah Menker, the founder and CEO of Grow Intelligence. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you were on this show before, at the early stages of the pandemic, when lockdowns were still in place and we faced a lot of uncertainty. You offered some insight and perspectives from the data you gathered in your AI modeling about how global markets were reacting and might react in the future. Now, with the Russian invasion of 
Ukraine, we see a different kind of uncertainty. The events are localized, seemingly not planet-wide like COVID-19, but there are already broad repercussions economically and speculation about how broad the impacts might become. What do you see going on? Two years later, many of the concerns that I'd shared still stand. Many of the supply chain challenges that were in place in 2020 still exist in our markets and in our systems. And we're going into this next new crisis with things in even more of a fragile state than they were going into COVID, right? So if you think of state of the world in 2020 and where our starting point was, it was much healthier, both literally and metaphorically. And so when the Russia and Ukraine war started, it was adding fuel to a fire, not necessarily starting a new one. Mm. And I know you guys do a lot of modeling. Were you anticipating what might happen if Russia invaded? And like, how were those predictions playing out and adjusting as we look ahead? Would we have predicted that Russia would be invading Ukraine and declaring a full-on war? No. But when sort of the rumblings came about, were we fast in being able to assess and say, which markets do we think will be most at risk? And what do we think are going to be the key themes of this year for global agriculture and food markets? I would say we were spot on. It's maybe worth contextualizing why this is not a local problem for just Russia and Ukraine, why this war is truly a global war. If you think of the importance of the Black Sea region as a whole, Russia and Ukraine combined today produce 14% of global wheat. But more importantly, they actually export and trade almost 30% of all wheat exports globally. So if you think about that, 30% of global wheat exports come from these two countries. They're also similar in terms of their importance to barley. They also contribute almost 20% of world corn exports. They supply 76% of global sunflower oil. This is a huge concentration risk that the world has. And then Russia in particular is one of the largest exporters in the world of three groups of major fertilizers. And so any cuts to fertilizer markets can further inflate fertilizer prices, which are already really, really high. Just going into the war, cash prices for urea, which is a form of fertilizer in the Midwest, were already up 90%. These have very global ramifications for our food systems, from everything that farmers are going to be able to plant, all the way to what we can get out into global markets and onto our plates. So it's very much a global war. A lot of the focus in a lot of the media is around the risk to the oil markets, oil and gas markets from Russia. We don't hear as much, at least yet, about the impacts on the food market. You're hearing more of it, but also oil and gas are very connected to our food markets. And the reason Russia is a major producer of fertilizer is because it's a major producer of natural gas. And natural gas is one of the key components to producing fertilizer. And, you know, every time Russia shuts down its pipelines to even Western Europe, fertilizer prices spike. It has been a mechanism and a tool for exerting power against Western Europe for sort of a long time. The other connection between energy markets and agriculture, a lot of agricultural products are used for the production of different types of oils and fuels ethanol and biodiesels, either using corn in the U.S. for ethanol, sugar in Brazil, 
in South Asia and Southeast Asia, it's using palm oil. So any shocks to any market have these deep connections that people don't fully understand. But more importantly, I would argue we'd need to eat before we need to drive. And as you're mentioning this, you're talking about prices spiking. And then I guess there are potential supply issues too, right? So if you think about supply, there's supply as in, is it going to grow? right? And the season was well underway in Russia and Ukraine. And our predictive models indicate that actually they're going to have pretty healthy harvests this year. So the question is going to become, can the farmers make it out to the field to actually harvest when time to harvest comes? And then can you get them out? Basically, can you move ships and barges out of Russia and Ukraine to get them to markets? And who's going to be willing to trade with Russia? So there's supply as in, can you grow it? And then there's supply as in available supply, namely, can you get it out? And the can you get it out part is something the market still is determining and every day brings with it all sorts of surprises. But ultimately, it all results in extreme, extreme unprecedented price moves and wheat markets. And we're seeing unreal moves and unreal disconnections. And traders are in a world of pain because these moves are just so large day to day now. You advise a lot of big agricultural and food concerns. What are your clients asking you? And I guess there may be different questions that you might get from sort of operator clients than from investor clients. Very different. The operator clients have what I call real world problems of keeping their team safe, keeping their infrastructure safe, not having to shut down plants and processing facilities. They're very heads down and rightfully so. The investor client front, it is all about volatility, where our market's headed. And by the way, the operator clients care about it a lot as well, because ultimately they need a surety of supply to produce the products that they're going to get on shelves, right? To add to the mix is, and something that's not talked about, one of the bigger sort of looming worries that we have as a company is one of the largest outlets for Russian and Ukrainian wheat was actually North Africa and the Middle East. Egypt, namely, is by far the largest importer and heavily, heavily dependent on imports from that region. That North Africa, Middle East region is also experiencing an unprecedented drought, a drought that's worse than any drought it's faced in over 25 years. And so they're going to have record import requirements. They're going to have to have alternative markets that they go to that can exacerbate inflation and cause all sorts of issues. It's sort of all of these parts. The largest supplier of fertilizer to Brazil is Russia. Having access to fertilizer is a key component to making sure you can grow. There's all of those moving parts, the if, the when, the how, the what, you know, it's all of those pieces. I know you have a background earlier on as a trader. Would you say this is an opportunity-laden moment for those in that business or risk-laden moment? It's a risk-laden moment. And here's why. When you have moves that are, you know, up 7% one day, down 7% one day, dislocations between price points and things that just, I'll give you an example. One of a followed contracts in the U.S. wheat market is the difference between the price of wheat delivered in July versus wheat delivered in December. So it's sort of the July-December spread. It is now at $1.65 per bushel, which is just Unreal. You know, when it traded positive in the past, it cents a bushel maybe, and then it flips right back. If you look at what happened even in 2014, it didn't happen to this extent. And it shows you sort of the level of fragility there is in the system. You mentioned the fragility in the system. 
And when it comes to understanding the economy, there's practical, tangible data, and then there's sort of the emotional component of it. Do you think fundamentals are that much different from when they it was 2014? Oh, fundamentals are definitely significantly different. We went into this war where wheat stocks globally were at near decade lows. We've had sort of an unprecedented number of supply and demand side shocks over the last couple of years. And, you know, I always say nothing can go wrong at this point in the growing season in Brazil and Argentina, which is happening right now. But unfortunately, a lot is going wrong because they're having a second year of drought. And so their production is going to be down quite a lot from where estimates are. Our models are significantly lower than where USDA is currently projecting their harvest to end up. And so nothing can go wrong in the U.S. this summer since it's already going wrong in South America. Let's hope we don't have any droughts or floods or anything in the U.S. this summer. It all sounds pretty scary when you talk about it, Sarah. Like, I mean, I know we talked last time it was scary times we were locked down with COVID. But as you describe the scenario now, it sounds almost like the risks are broader even than they were then. Yes, they're significantly broader and prices are already significantly higher. And that's why I said, like, we're entering this phase in an even more fragile state as a world than we entered COVID in 2020. Hey, listeners, it's Jodine Dorsey, the VP of Live Events at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. I am constantly tasked with reaching out to teams across a wide spectrum of professions and the vastly different personalities that go with them. Grammarly helps me quickly shift tones to better communicate what I want to say and saves me valuable time in the process. Our upcoming Masters of Scale Summit event features top-tier speakers from CEOs to founders to political leaders. Grammarly's ability to produce on-brand writing helps me properly prepare for each and every thought leader I interact with on stage. It lets me generate the most exciting specialized content for our audience. In fact, teams that use Grammarly report 66% less time spent editing marketing content, which I've seen firsthand with my Summit team. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Before the break, we heard Sarah Manker, CEO of Grow Intelligence, explain how the war in Ukraine is increasing the fragility in global markets. Now she shares what we need to understand about currency moves, Russia's trade with China, and largely overlooked impacts in the Middle East. She argues that recent advances in data and analytics have enhanced our ability to address these challenges. Plus, she stresses the need for all of us to continue to keep our eyes on climate change, despite the distractions. We saw recently, like the U.S. released some of their strategic oil reserves. Does that stuff have an actual tangible impact or does the market just soak that up and it's sort of more an emotional bomb for the moment? The release from the strategic oil reserves is tiny compared to how much oil is going to be needed. It's adding a little bit of sort of relief, but it's not it's not much. Russia is a major player in the global oil markets. And many countries, you know, don't have strategic reserve programs. Like in the U.S. is incredibly lucky, right, in terms of, one, it's the most food secure place on earth. Two, it's now also energy secure. Most countries are importers of both and don't have the financial resources to keep reserves. I want to ask you about the drop in the value of the ruble. What are the implications of the changing value of the ruble in the economy and all of this? It certainly makes Russian goods cheaper to the global market. 
But that's if the market's willing to trade with Russia. (laughs) It's being cut out of the global financial system and people are pulling their businesses out of there. Oftentimes when these types of currency moves happen, and we see this happening in South America and Argentina, et cetera, where those who control the goods that get exported tend to hold on to those goods because they serve as holding on to equivalent of U.S. dollars. You only sell what you need to sell to get the dollars that you need. So in in Argentina, the oil is soybeans. Farmers will oftentimes keep soybeans in like storage facilities on their fields and hide them and not report that they have them and then sell them as they need. And so it also creates weird, perverse incentives for the local traders around how they look at the preservation of their wealth. Is there any clarity yet about what Russia's trade with China is going to be like? Is that where the trade might be happening? That's a very good question. I I would say one of the, the most overlooked but really, really important developments in the markets that occurred maybe a week or two before the war started was actually China finally approved the import of Russian wheat into China. Russia was previously not one of the seven countries that was actually an accepted exporter of wheat into China. Putin had started to lobby for this about two years ago on his trip to China when he met with Xi Jinping to get these doors opened. And that was allowed in a few weeks earlier. So the answer is most likely yes. I guess it's an outlet for the global market, but also a limitation on the impact of those sanctions and restrictions. Exactly. When we talked early in the pandemic, you noted that people were worried about their food supply, but overlooking the risk of a big locust infestation that was underway in Africa. Are there things that people are overlooking today that were being distracted from that could have implications for the economy, for supply chains, for food security? The Middle East issue is a real one. Like, and we really need to watch out because let's not forget the last Arab Spring sparked because of the price of bread. You know, the largest producer of wheat in the Middle East is Iran. And Iran is also having an unprecedented drought. And it's expected that Iran will need to import 40% more wheat than it has imported in previous years. That's not an insignificant amount. And so this goes back to the notion of health versus fragility and that we are in a fragile state as a world. And so it's going to take very little or very little more to create some type of outsized reaction. So what is the upside? Where do you go when you're looking for the optimism? (laughs) Honestly, I go to the fact that we can get these level of insights today, like You know, three, four years ago, the understanding that we had of the world on a real-time basis just was significantly worse, especially of regions like Russia and Ukraine, et cetera. And somebody asked me this question yesterday, like, what gives you hope about the role that you feel like GROW can play in solving for challenges around food security and climate change? And I said, gives me hope because we are solving problems that didn't seem were solvable. Now we have the bigger problem, which is we've solved it on a technical front as changing human behavior. We're doing things that we never imagined possible from a technical standpoint now. And so next is going to be getting people to change their ways. But I think it's possible because if you understand this and then you change your behaviors as a result of it, you can drive long-term structural change. I feel hopeful because we can answer questions much faster than ever before. And sometimes having an answer itself is empowering. Hmm. And so we understand how 
global trade and supply chains work better than we did two, three years ago? Very much so. I mean, companies like ours have spent, you know, an unbelievable amount of time and resources essentially building out models that help us fill these gaps, right? And it comes from the fact that one is we're generating more data than ever before, and we continue to do that. But more importantly, we're synthesizing that data and generating insights from it much faster than ever before. And we're connecting the dots between those insights, right? So it's not just about having a model, it's about connecting the dots across models. So, you know, first part of any journey or even the world's journey on data was like, can we get enough data? And then it was like, oh, we have too much of it. And then can we organize it? And then it's like, okay, then what insights can we generate? And that's sort of where you build the model, but now you start to understand a system when each model speaks to one another, right? And we're sort of getting closer and closer to that world. The Ukraine crisis, we're still counting in days. How different might your models look in a week, in a month? I mean, you're feeding fresh data every day, right? Yeah. You know, listen, some models will move more than others, right? Models around production, they have nothing to do with the war. They have everything to do with the war on climate, but they have nothing to do with the war between Russia and Ukraine. But then things like trade models, those swing around saw this morning that a ministry in Russia has suggested that they ban the export of all fertilizer. Like I mentioned, Russia is one of the world's greatest fertilizer exporters. Why would they do that? That's them waging war against the world, saying, you need us, you need our fertilizer, and so now we're going to shut you out. They would need the money more than they need the fertilizer, but, you know, we're talking about Russia here. And so (laughs) does that change trade patterns? Absolutely. Well, I always learn so much talking with you. What have we not talked about? What we're not talking about is climate change as much, although the IPCC issued a major report this week around that too. And, you know, people aren't as focused on it, but they'll focus when, you know, some major crop gets wiped out because, you know, some flood occurs or something like that. We're horrible as humans, right? Is that we always need some type of reminder that's so shaking to our core for us to pay attention again. Well, let's hope we don't need anything too traumatic, too much more traumatic to uh, get us to move. Yes, because trauma, we have enough of it. (laughs) We still have a pandemic that we're managing and now a a war of proportions nobody ever imagined. Well, I hope the next time you and I get to talk, there are sunnier things for us to talk about. Thank you so much for taking the time and taking us through this. Always an education. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everyone. It's Jeff Berman, CEO of Wait What and co-host of the Masters of Scale podcast. Like many of you, my to-do list changes by the minute. Whether I'm working with partners or hashing out legal documents or brainstorming with our team, there is never a shortage of tasks that require attention and constant communication. Like Masters of Scale co-host Reid Hoffman, I know artificial intelligence is a huge part of our future. And Grammarly is an enterprising leader in AI. With Grammarly, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. It's like having a collaborator for my writing, helping me generate better first drafts and tailoring messages to our specific audiences. It's not only a superior AI tool, it is a safe AI tool. And as a CEO, security is always top of mind. Grammarly has 14 years of experience and a business model that never sells our data. Security has been a priority since day one and continues to be integral to Grammarly's values today. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, 
hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely using sanitized audio gear. I'm your Rapid Response host, Bob Safian. Host for Masters of Scale is Reed Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producers are Jordan McLeod, Christina Gonzalez, and Marie McCoy-Thompson. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Daniel Nissenbaum and the Holiday Brothers. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nault, and Mike Gallagher. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Sarah Sandman, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Charlie Manessis, Adam Heiner, Anna Pizzino, Ben Richardson, Mina Kurosawa, Saida Sapieva, and Colin Howard. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode and be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.